Welcome back to another episode of Discover, brought to you by the Armenian Institute. My name is Olivia Melkunyan, and today I'm joined by our program manager, Dr. Nick Mateo, a London Cypriot activist within the Kurdish Freedom Movement, and Sophia Armin, Los Angeles-based organizer, scholar, and writer. Today we're going to be discussing the relevance and the importance of organizing across global communities and also why the Armenian struggle does not end at recognition. Yeah, my name is Sophia Armin. Um, I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, California, where I'm coming to you today. I have a hard time identifying this way, but I'll just say I, I am organizing in the community here um, and I'm a writer and I'm also a scholar. My most recent work has been with two organizations, the Feminist Front, which is a um, grassroots youth organization at the intersections of gender and racial justice, and the Armenian Action Network, which is a very exciting um, new platform for research and advocacy for the needs of Armenians within the United States, of course, connecting our issues of social justice to global justice as well. Nick and I were talking about this as well when we were looking into the episode, but that article um, that you, or I guess it was the conversation that was transcribed in, into the article in 2019 about how activism for the Armenian genocide is still an issue today. I remember reading it and it was kind of when I started using sound and I got into, into telling Armenian stories through sound and it just really was the first kind of literally like mo- modern take on it and and I guess an explanation to why it is so important today and why everybody has has a role to play within it. Yeah, that was the way that I um, found out about it as well, Sphere, and uh, it was a real breath of fresh air to to see the Armenian genocide and and activism for recognition being being spoken about in this way because it's at least been rare in, in in my experience to see people speak about it as an issue of racial justice that is immediately connected to other issues of social justice um, in the region uh, and not both that has both its particular Armenian struggle and also this broader regional and then uh, human struggle. So really excited to talk today. Appreciate it. And I just, just because you all brought it up, I want to say that um, the the woman who I did the interview with was Bana Gadban, who is a deep personal friend and sister organizer. Um, and she really helped, I think, me be brave about trying to address many of the issues that I think we are facing globally at the same time. Um, and I say this only to affirm her incredible work that um, she has been doing. She's a Syrian Arab poet and really a daughter of the revolution. So I, I wanna say that part of the easiest way to do these things is to do them in community. And so that's why I'm happy to be here with you all to, to continue those conversations in community. So my first question for you um, is quite topical. Um, you're based in the US. The US is on the verge, we hope, of recognizing the Armenian genocide. Nick and I are here in the UK. We don't see any progression on recognition. So what do you think that this means for the respective US and UK based diasporas? And how do these governmental decisions impact our activism? 
right before this conversation, I was literally emailing different organizers across the US to get them to urge Biden to recognize it that I don't think it's quite in the bag yet. <laughs> but I'll believe it when I see it. And I only say that because especially the Democratic Party, unfortunately, has often given us some false hope and promises. So I believe 100% that it is so possible. And that has to be the lifeblood of how we continue to work. But I just want to say that I don't think it's guaranteed until it happens. And then, <laughs> and then we'll see it. So but I think, you know, we not only are in a prime moment for this recognition within the US, but it's been a long time coming. And, and that's what I really want to emphasize is that when the US House and the US Senate passed this in 2019, um, I received a lot of questions about, you know, is it just the timing? Why is this happening? And I just have to emphasize, even with Biden, the possibility of finally recognition happening of the US, right? that this is the product of a hundred years of struggle, of grassroots Armenian struggle in this country and also around the world. And this is not some uh, coincidence. It's really because of the compounding effects of all of those generations who have fought. Those legacies all are needed so that each next generation can take it up. And so unfortunately, even within my own family, and I say this unfortunately because it's just the truth for so many Armenians within the US, is that you know three generations of my family have fought for this within the US. And in so many times, we have heard the same response be, well, it's not politically convenient. It doesn't help America's geopolitical imperialist interests within the region. We need to worry about Turkey's alliance with the US. We need to worry about NATO, et cetera, right? And I think we need to really probe at why it has taken so long, more honestly, because I think other communities need to understand those dynamics that we face. And so I want to say that if, if Biden does recognize it, and he must, I mean, he must, it is a complete outrage, a moral outrage that the U.S. has not recognized the Armenian genocide because of these geopolitical interests. And if he does, it means that we have triumphed, our grassroots organizing, our activism has triumphed, that is what has won. I think what it means is it means that community organizing, that our initiatives, that our building together does work. And so now when we talk about the UK, and I'm sure you all have much more insight on this than me, but what I will say is, is that so often the United States and the UK have essentially assisted with their global human rights violations or their lack of reckoning with history, right? Or have been accomplices in oppressive regimes around the world together. And so they often, one will do something and the other will follow suit and that's both ways. So I'm really hoping that if Biden does recognize the Armenian genocide, which we are deeply hopeful will happen on April 24th this year, that that will encourage all global leaders to recognize the Armenian genocide. And as we know, this recognition piece in the Armenian struggle in its history has always only been one slice of it, one part of it. And it's definitely not justice, but it's deeply necessary and needed. Yeah. Yes. I think that's a really important perspective to see these kinds of 
changes, especially when they go against the geopolitical grain or they seem to go against the geopolitical grain, not as just decisions of governments, as you say, like it might be just a decision that they make because that option is available in a particular political moment. But what's made that option available and what's given it the political weight that it has behind it is exactly the organizing of generations of people on the ground. And I think, yeah, that can that can get lost very often in these kinds of struggles. I see it as, as well as the Armenian genocide, also in Cyprus, with uh, trying to get negotiations. We can't take a sort of lobbyist attitude to this. This has to be a, a continuous mobilization. We saw the House finally bring it to the floor within the United States because we elected the most diverse and the, the most women in Congress in the history of the United States. And it is not a coincidence that finally the elements of the Democratic Party that were able to bring forward this global justice issue happened to align in that moment with the community organizing and with who was then in power. And so I also wanna say that Biden's election is thanks to the work of you know, people on the ground in especially Southern states, communities of color, who really, all of these pieces have to fall in line for us to now finally be here in this beautiful triumphant moment. So each of these wins are built on each other, just as the Senate was built on the House win. And so I want us to always think about that US recognition is always connected to the other struggles that are happening within the United States. And the more we empower those who are structurally disempowered in the US, it helps all people who are struggling so what do you think Armenian self-determination looks like today? And how do you think we can learn from these indigenous struggles which reimagine sovereignty? This question was kind of inspired by looking at the resistance of Armenians in Van in 1915 and looking at the same place today and the strong presence of the Kurdish resistance there, which make the city, you know, a historic and a modern center of survival against the same forces. So I think for one, when we talk about the Armenian genocide as a system and structure of power, it's not about a one-time event or a one-time moment in history. So if we think about genocide as being a structure of racism that replicates itself over and over again, then we're able to get at the root of what's causing it and how to prevent it or how to stop violence. And of course, we know that the root of the Armenian genocide is uh, racial ideology, pan-Turkism or Turnism, depending on how you would like to frame it. But in the experience of the Armenians, this was very obvious in that the construction of the Turk was not only named as superior, but anyone who did not fit that construction right was a target of violence and is to, to today. And so that's what we see the refusal within Turkey to uh, reckon with these historical ghosts um, are still haunting everywhere. And it's very interesting, I think, uh, that you all bring up Vaughn because I'm Vonitsi and my, my grandfather's father actually was in the self-defense of Vaughn. His name was Anusha Vaughn. And he is part of those absolutely fascinating Armenians who unfortunately not only had to flee, but then left his family here in Fresno and went back to fight in the self-defense of Vaughn all within the period of a couple years. And I say this because I think people think of these 
moments within history very romantically or abstractly or outside of people who are living today. But the truth of the matter is, is just like my family from Vaughan, my family from Harpet, my family from Istanbul, my family from Hajin, we all still know where our houses were or are. We all still know the land that we're connected to. And the Kurdish struggle today in so many ways, though it is not the same, and I wanna emphasize that, it mirrors so many of the, not only forces, but ways that people have had to resist those forces with the Armenian struggle in Turkey. And we know this because it's not just that, you know, Kurdish people are seen as second-class citizens, but once again, that the very foundation story of the Turkish state is unraveled <laughs> by those of us who do not fit within this Turanist or pan-Turkist vision, and that there will be no peace without justice, not only for these historical crimes, but for a justice that is forward thinking, that thinks about a Turkey or thinks about a region in a much different way, because this racism is actually also poisoning the people who are inflicting it. Because when you define yourself based on the othering of communities, you will constantly have to perpetuate violence in order to erase those other people through every generation. And so when we see Vaughn today as such an important center of the Kurdish struggle, to me, I think that everywhere and within every question also are, are talking about Armenians. There is no future of justice. There's no future of you know, recognition, responsibility, even joint struggle without us actually building, acknowledging these histories and understanding their connections. And I would only add, you know, because this question is so important is when people think of the Armenian struggle as this past, you know, phenomenon, these people who were there, right? That's not a coincidence. That's actually how indigenous people throughout the world are purposely erased, right? Otherwise, you are having to not only acknowledge they're there, but ask why they're not there. When we talk about 10 to 15 million Armenians, right here, I'm talking to Armenians <laughs> across an ocean, we are talking about the living afterlife of genocide in, in the flesh and blood. That is us. We are enough proof. There are more of us out here and we live, we live these stories. Anushavan had a child, my grandfather. My grandfather had a child, my mother. I'm here, her daughter. We are not some abstracted historical text that is removed from the everyday reality of people who live on the land. And also for the Armenian diaspora from these events, we have to learn about the struggles that are currently happening on the land from which we're from. When we are talking about Middle East history, the erasure of Armenians and Assyrians is not a coincidence. It is part of that exact same Turanist logic that mirrors our physical erasure and also the intellectual erasure of, of what we contribute to this deeply diverse <laughs> region. Um, and I really believe that it is our of utmost importance that we have to fight erasure in all levels at all times. I think a couple of things that feel really important that you're that you pointing to is one, 
about the this continuity of a certain structure in the Turkish state from the late Ottoman state uh, into the into the Republic. For one thing, because I think that's the right. way in which we, we avoid some of the racism on our own sides, I, and it's something I see endlessly in Greek communities and Greek Cypriot communities against Turks, against this abstract ethnic barbaric sort of other that reproduces so many similar tropes to like 19th century racism about the Turk. And instead you locate this violence in a really specific historical thing. It's a state that has a beginning, has a middle, and we hope that it will have an end and a different thing will replace it, which will obey, enable all of us to have a freer life. And I think that that makes it much more concrete. Um, and it's interesting that, that in the Kurdish freedom movement, this is really clearly the perspective. It's something that I noticed straight away on slogans, on demonstrations. It's right. not Turks or Turkey, it's Turkish state. And it's interesting, the, the conclusion that got drawn from this, like if anyone who sort of hears something about, about Kurds, often they'll hear this phrase, world's largest stateless nation. And one of the friends actually said to me in the movement, they say, they always say this like it's a bad thing. But I feel happy. I'm glad we never managed to get a state. I'm glad that we never got this nation state because it means that we don't have this hang up on the state. When we're looking at self-determination, like you say, it's about not having an exclusive claim, but seeing a particular claim and having an idea of self-determination that doesn't cancel another one's out. Where, where all, of our, all of us claiming our history, all of us reclaiming our role in the, in the region, is a kind of value-added process. It, it adds more each time. I, I think reflecting on also the the, the Armenian uh, genocide and the role of Kurds in the Armenian genocide, the, the Abdullah Jalan issued an apology for that role in, in the 90s, right. um, is a big way that they get to that. Like you said, if you look at this resistance today, then the presence of Armenians is, is, is everywhere. Those of us who have been I think part of the Armenian liberation struggle throughout history have always named the Turkish state as the source of oppression. But I also want to just name, because I often feel the pressure to have to say that repeatedly, and I find that very interesting as someone whose entire family does not get to exist on the land because in every way everyone was displaced, that of course, 100%, this is about the consolidation of that racism within the state. And that's the truth, right? That's what enacts this violence. But I also have to say, especially um, as US recognition might now finally be a reality after a hundred years, is that there has to be, there has to be a reckoning within the hearts of the public of Turkey. And also Turkish society does not deal with these issues, which is that these are foundational fundamental issues that affect everyone, that the people who are in Turkey, who are, are Armenian, are not a minority, they are who are left. And if you understand that within a historical legacy, you will also understand that not only should there be 20 million Armenians within Turkey today, but that we actually still exist out here and we can be in dialogue with you constantly and we should be. You have young organizers across the world who are Armenians, who, who not only know their own history, but who are living proof and evidence, not just of the Armenian genocide, but of our continued stuck in limbo reality, right? In regards to these issues. 
we're also talking about our identity and our identity across the world. And I think many Armenians, especially who are young today, think about what is my place and relationship to this region, right? What is my relationship to Armenia? What's my relationship to Turkey? And those are living questions. They are not a question of a hundred years ago. They are questions that are genuinely about our current day existence and keep following generation after generation. You see, we have the same questions that emerge and pop up. And so instead of us continually asking for validation elsewhere, instead of us continually saying, well, our governments just need to get in line. No, our struggles need to get in line. Our people need to be building this across, across differences, across communities. And if anything, if I were to say anything, to the public of Turkey, honestly, to Turkish youth who are incredibly struggling against you know, their government on a day-to-day -day basis, especially today, it's that we're out here. We're not myths. We're not dead people. Our families are not just you know, people who were massacred and displaced. We are living, breathing people who have come from not only these communities, but who have preserved these legacies within our families and who are building off them today. I really truly believe we have to be talking to each other. We need to be building with each other. And it is so not an issue of the past. It is such a current day, urgent, desperately needed existential issue. Why is Turkish identity mutually exclusive to the othering of these indigenous groups? I think there needs to be an existential reckoning with Turkish identity. And I believe that many communities' fates are at stake. And if it's not the Armenians and then the Kurds or Greeks or you know, Jewish folks, etc., there will always be a new community if you create identity and humanity based on this racial classification of superiority. And that's really at the root of it. It's, it's racism. And racism is a system that I believe is the most powerful system in the world in so many ways and it intersects with so many things, but is at the heart of so much of this violence. And at the end of the day, Turkish identity has to be challenged itself. But I really do not believe that Turkey will ever see true democracy I don't believe that Turkey will ever have peace, honestly, for people in Turkey, unless we deal with the afterlife of the Armenian genocide. Unless we have not only an honest conversation, but right the historical wrongs through reparations, through completely fundamentally changing Turkish society, right, for a more inclusive vision of what that means to be from you know, this land and the mythologies are so powerful today. It's no coincidence that the enemy Armenian is still such a prominent figure within Turkish politics. If we get US recognition and UK recognition, our next question is now what, right? Something that Monte Malkonian was talking about <laughs> decades ago. Now what? The Turkish public needs to have a mirror to itself. And that's why this issue around the Armenian genocide, its recognitions, its historical legacy, reparations, even the question of return, what would it mean for Armenian diasporans around the world 
the connection to the physical country. What is the status? I really want to bring this back up again because I don't think it's just a closed question now that time has passed. When we're talking about that relationship, it is so charged because it means finally sitting with those ghosts. And I think that's why Turkey is so afraid of opening it because it will challenge people's very identities that they have built on exclusion. I want to meet people to have these conversations across borders because that is what is needed. And justice will not come from the US government. It will not come from the UK government. All of these things are deeply important on the route to what that justice looks like, but ultimately it will happen in the people. And we're out here to not only have the conversations, but to build those futures that look like justice. And that's my only hope. It's only by creating similarly robust structures that can anchor a different kind of ideology that is ever going to be overcome. And it's only it's only only this can sort of make sense of like the people who are raised believing in this mythology and then seeing so many identities that have to be denied. So many massacres right. that that right. just by recognizing their existence is an existential threat to them and to everything that they've learned. And it, of course, right. the Armenian genocide and the Assyrian genocides, the expulsions of Greeks, the Pontic genocide, right. but also Alevis, uh, like right. the Dersim genocide, also uh, the massacre in Marash, the existence the, or the potential for, for anything that could be meaningfully be called democracy in this land, in this space, depends on that question. National governments use regularly lack of evidence as a reason to not officially acknowledge the genocide. How do you believe oral histories can be used as evidence and how do they hold the power of autonomy for Armenians within our very hands and our very homes? I think that there is a overemphasis on needing number one, Western recognition as a idea and number two, Western academics as the arbiters of truth for the entire world. So I, I don't think that just because something that I would write about my family, if someone else wrote it right, makes it any better or worse or less objective, to be honest. And I think when we saw even in the war recently, we see the kind of bias that we are accused of by birth. And I think that is really unfortunate and does not get placed on Western academics in the same way who are invested in power, just like their governments. And so we need to analyze that. So if we understand that, that Armenians have been historically marginalized within Western archives, and if we understand that Armenians have been largely erased, we understand that there are forces of power that have done that. But we also understand that there are parallel archives, right? That we have not let them go. <laughs> and that things like, for example, the Armenian Institute are uh, such a beautiful example of that, right? which is Armenians have never just silently let our history go or let these stories die, right? We are actively organizing and building and creating institutions and organizations to preserve them. And so when we talk about how can we have evidence, the truth of the matter is, is that one of the tactics of turnism is to gaslight us and tell us that we're crazy and that it's not true. And so that we have to constantly be proving it. And this is what the U.S. has done every year to the Armenian American community, which is, mm, we're not sure, massacres, you know, time of war, 
the same turn as talking points. And so every year we have to essentially what I would call bring out our dead. And it's a deeply dehumanizing process. It is reliving these stories over and over again. I know Armenians have at times felt like we have to fit these narratives to, to an audience. And that really isn't true. We just need to speak them and, and not only preserve them, but again, talk about their contemporary implications, right? And talk about them honestly and authentically for what they are. So the evidence of the Armenian genocide doesn't live in any master volume. It lives in the millions of us around the world. And we're proof enough in our very existence that we don't live in our homeland. And that's enough. And so our stories are the most powerful forces against that re-envisioning and also that denial. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our website and all major streaming platforms at Zamazam Sounds to find more. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Armenian Institute. Take care and we hope to see you next time.